It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. Yo, man. Boom, it's Rusty. What's up, everybody? It is Thursday. Uh, thank you for being here on the Public Access Podcast, the p- podcast. I'm your host, Rusty Diamond. This is on the Quantum Global Broadcasting Network, QGBN. Check out other great shows on the network, such as When the Gloves Come Off, The Thinking Man's Pro Wrestling Podcast. This is it with Lizzie and Saved by the Ben. And this show is brought to you by Fred Ben Savage as Fuck, Stone Reads Productions, Hardcore Entertainment, Hypnosis is great and sockemup.org. You guys, you can call in and leave a message. That's fun, right? Call in, leave a message for me. I'll get you on the air here and uh, you can leave a message. Or if you're not into leaving messages, you can be like, Messages? Messages? We don't leave no speaking messages. Right, but there you go. Yeah, I need messages. So, um, yeah, get those messages. So, you guys, thank you so much for being here. And I'm gonna bring on special guest right here, right now. If I can get this pulled up. Oh, there we go. That's so nice. And I'm going to bring the special guest on right here, right now. We have. Julia Trahane. How are you doing, Julia? Hello, I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you? Great, thank you. Yeah, good to hear. It's, uh, I had to think about what day of the week it is and whatever that means to anyone. I don't know. Every day, every day I'm here, so it's all, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me what day it is. Um, it's weird on coming back on Monday because I know I miss being here. I miss being here and I, I like Mondays. I, I'm a big fan of Mondays. Monday morning first thing. It's not, you know, Monday's gotten a pretty bad rap, but I enjoy it. I enjoy coming back here and doing this and you know, making content for people. It's it's fun. Um, you know, it's Monday. It's Monday, but today's not Monday. Today's Thursday. So mm-hmm. so they tell me, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know, but um, yeah. So, I I mean, what what's a, what's a Monday morning look like in in your world? Oh goodness! So I work from home. So I guess I'm so blessed because I get to choose my hours and I get to choose what when I work. Um, so Mondays can be different every week, but every day for me starts with a really lovely walk with my dogs down by the river which okay. I just love. And that's just the perfect start to my day every day. What kind of dogs do you have? Crazy ones. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have two, they're Bordoodles, Border Collie crossed with a Poodle. Okay. And uh, yeah, they're lovely. Uh, you said Border Collie crossed with a Poodle. Yeah. So yeah, uh, and it was called a what? Bordoodle. A board doodle, not 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 a a poo collie that didn't. Some people call them collie poos. 
Polypoos. Okay. All right. So, all right. So a, a board, no. Bordoodle. Bordoodle is what, okay, what it's <laughs> called. All right. Um, yeah. So then you get to go out every morning for a walk with them. And uh, yeah. I probably, if this is on something where they can hear it, hopefully I don't say that word too loud. Uh, <laughs> hopefully they don't hear me say the W word. Uh, uh, they can spell as well. Oh, okay, good. So that they know, they know when someone's talking about that. Yeah. yeah, they also seem to have an internal clock, so they know exactly what time they go out as well. Okay, yeah, and so it's probably the same with when they get fed, or yeah, oh, so much. Yeah, yeah. They like to tell me at least half an hour beforehand that it's nearly dinner time. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I, I had a cat like that, and at five o'clock in the morning she'd come meowing outside the door and it lasted for a little bit until I thought there has to be something better to do I have to I, I'm pretty good at thinking outside the box and so eventually I got to well what if there's got to be some sort of timer feeder for for cats or for any animals <laughs> So I got a timer feeder that would go off every morning at 4.30. So then the cat wouldn't be there at five in the morning to wake me up, um, which was cool. But good plan. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at automating stuff. That's kind of kind of something I've, I've figured out. I don't know if that's me being uh ways of me being lazy or just ways of you know oh, I'd go for efficient 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 is yeah I'm a, I'm an efficiency counselor for people sometimes uh yeah. that's I don't know if that's a real job but I I like to it can be now yeah I, right I like to call myself that so <laughs> um so you go out for your walk with your dogs every morning and then you come back and then then what happens is it anything uh anywhere um some days i go to the gym if i'm feeling it that day um i do my whatsapp support for my clients every morning well i do that throughout every day and so um, what would that so entail just catching up with them seeing how they're doing encouraging them and supporting them for reaching their goals and helping them if they're struggling. So, so are their goals, um, are they telling you their goals, how they're doing with them? Or is there some way they're automatically logged and you see how they're doing? No, it's not uh, automatically then... logged. They tell me. We, we okay. work on them together. We, we work on goals that they can reach together that are achievable. And then um, they tell me when they reach them and we celebrate. How do you celebrate? Just by saying well done and sending gifts and just like telling them how proud I am of them for, because they're only like, they can feel really huge, but they are only small goals. So you can achieve like several in one day. They're just like being able to have some lunch and rest for half an hour and that sort of thing. Okay. And then so what so when they do happen, um 
you, you said celebrate and gifts, but what happens if if they don't meet those goals? How how is that managed with your okay, so, so we look approach? At, we look at what might have happened, what might have come up that have made it difficult to reach and put strategies in place that make it easier next time. Um, but no humans are perfect, so you can't always get everything right. Right. So, yeah, just look at ways that are more achievable. So what would an example of that be? Um, gosh, there's so many different examples. So one of my clients really struggles with doing compulsive exercise. And sometimes the eating disorder voice is so, so loud in her head that it's just too much for her to bear. And she does the exercise just to quieten the voice down. Um, but that, that then feeds the eating disorder and kind of keeps the eating disorder path in her brain going, which is obviously not what we want to do. Right. So if she has exercised, well, there's, there's no shame in that. It's, she's human and the eating disorder voice is incredibly loud and invasive. And so we'll look at ways of coping with that, look at reasons why resting would be more beneficial. Um, look at things like, could she do some breathing and allow the, the space for the uncomfortable feelings to be there and to breathe through them? Um, I sometimes create meditations for people to listen to so that they can have something else to do instead. Um, can she phone a friend? Can we jump on a call? to try and let that those urges pass and be more distracted so that you can get through it. There's lots of different things for each different situation that we can work with. So during those meditations, are there uh, suggestions within those meditations or uh, during the, you know, uh, I mean, cause there's, there's a very, very thin line between you know, between hypnosis and, and meditation or yeah. many other things or, um, you know, uh, guided, whatever, guided breathing, guided spirituality. It's all kind of the, you know, pretty much the same thing. And so is there, so is there. Um, so, the, the, yeah, there's, there's stuff in the meditations to just reassure them that they're safe and that they have a choice and the, the, the eating disorder can't force them to do anything and that they are good enough as they are without doing the things the eating disorder says and that they do have worth and value as a person just for simply existing. They don't have to earn that and that they can eat without compensating or trying to earn the food first. So it's just reassuring them that it's okay to be them in a kind of really calm and peaceful way, rather than fighting with the eating disorder voice, which is just quite frankly, exhausting. And so then are you, uh, like, is this in, uh, what do I, I mean, in, are you uh, a, What's I don't know. Uh, 
in lieu of a, a counselor or psychiatrist or are you in addition to one or are you one or how does how does that work so i'm not a psychiatrist no um i'm a recovery coach and my although i am a qualified coach my experience that i use is my own experience of 40 years of living within an eating disorder and recovering. And so the biggest feeling within an eating disorder is fear um, and lack of control. And it's not really about the food at all. It's about not feeling safe and not feeling good enough and not feeling in control. But the fear is, it's like no other fear you can ever imagine because it makes no logical sense to people that don't have an eating disorder or haven't ever experienced one to be afraid of the very thing that will keep you alive. Yeah. And, but that fear is, that, is overwhelming. Sorry, is, that, is, that, is that the same for most everybody who experiences that? Is that, or is that fear differ from person to person or is it, is that almost always a very large it's, factor? The fears are a very huge factor of an eating disorder. The fear that somehow, if you don't do as it says, you're just not going to be good enough and everyone is going to hate you and you'll be completely unaccepted by the world. And if you gain weight, then pretty much your world is going to end. And that's that's how it feels. It, it's that dramatic. It's that catastrophic. It's all-encompassing and overwhelming it's it's really quite hard to explain how it's like a psychotic being has entered your head and is completely controlling you and if you don't know what it says the fires of hell are just going to fall all around you and so the the old uh psychology versus sociology question would you say it's more the person is the catalyst for this or the their surroundings are the catalyst from the for this or is it maybe a combination of both and if so the combination was what do you think the percentage is for each okay um so i can't give you any percentages um i don't have any to hand and i, I would quite honestly just probably not give you the accurate information what would a, um, a rough estimation be from you <laughs> From, from someone with 40 years of uh, data that you've, of personal data. My eating disorder started because I wanted to be, I had a really, really critical father and I could never ever do anything right. And in order to be, not in trouble to be good enough it was best for me to be as small as possible to stay as unseen as possible to try and be invisible and part of my father's criticism was about emotions he didn't like people showing their emotions at all um and I was I was told off if I cried and stuff like that as a little girl and when you restrict your food you also restrict your emotions. So for me, the eating disorder had, it was like twofold and it helped me to stay very small and to stay unseen. And it also helped restrict all my emotions so that I didn't get in trouble for showing any. Um, so that was kind of the catalyst for me. 
I have to apologize for my dogs in the background. Is it walk time? Um, yeah, that was the catalyst for me. And sorry, so I really apologize, they're so noisy. But the anorexia particularly, there is a genetic component to it as well. And some people are born with this gene. That so is, is like that from, uh, I mean, so I, I've, I've talked on here about trauma and stuff of that nature being hereditary and going down 25 generations into the future. Um, is that something sort of similar to that um, with it, with, with anorexia or um, genetically, how is that passed? Genetically, it goes back to prehistoric days. It's the flea to famine response. So um, people used to have to, there was times of famine and they used to have to move to a land of plenty. And those people that could move quite freely to a land of plenty and could manage without eating in the meantime until they got to the place where they could feast survived the best and so people adapted this gene to be able to do that and some people when they lose weight be that from a diet be that from an illness um, or any any reason whatsoever this gene is activated and their bodies tell them not to eat and to keep moving as much as possible. And, and that's the migration response. And prehistorically, they would come back to like a land of plenty and start to feast again. But because we don't actually have those famines and stuff in the first world that I currently live in, um, then there is no feasting. And so it can go on and on and on and on and people can get really, really sick. And so with that, then, is there some sort of, I don't know, because then uh, when this, when there's not the food being, having the intake, it's usually, a, you know, something that is a, also a way for your your body to heal uh you know like fasting and stuff so is there some sort of component with that as well is there some sort i mean i don't know if that's the part that's you know uh researched as much with with that as uh because there's been you know there's a lot of of data with fasting and um and is there any sort of connection with that or is it it could certainly trigger it yes if you have that genetic component and you lose a lot of weight with fasting I did a lot of fasting through my illness and I was incredibly good at it I could go for five six days quite easily without eating anything um, and I didn't have any hunger signals at all so, so yeah oh go ahead I was going to say it was just it was very easy for me to not eat because I didn't have the hunger signals at all. And so how was your your body reacting with that? With that um, uh, intake or lack of intake of, of food? 
how you wouldn't expect. I had a lot of energy. I was basically surviving on stress hormones. So I was permanently in the fight or flight response. Uh, so I was on the go all the time. I would exercise for up to eight hours every day. I slept very little, like a couple of hours maximum a night and just kept myself really, really, really busy all the time. But I was also exhausted at the same time, like internally, and your body borrows energy from all your muscles, your organs, your brain, your heart. So when you're malnourished, your brain actually cannot function properly because your body goes into like a survival response. So lots of functions that normal people have, you don't have anymore. Like I was freezing cold all the time because my body didn't bother with temperature regulation at all. Um, I didn't have a menstrual cycle for many, many years because my body wasn't, didn't feel safe to reproduce because there wasn't enough food. Um, you start to grow extra hair to keep you warm because you're so cold. Um, your bones get thinner, you break more easily because you're taking energy from them. So it's, it's very dangerous to not eat, very dangerous indeed. And it's, you kind of live in your own like prison in your head. You don't, you're not present. You're constantly worried and afraid all the time. And you don't notice what's going on in the world. You feel alone. You just like trapped in this cage in your and, own head. And you were saying about the part with, uh, you know, always being in fight or flight mode. Mm -hmm. And at when you're in fight or flight mode, when you're, you're, you know, going off of that, I mean, your brain isn't able to take in new ideas or, you know, anything like that. And your decision making becomes, you know, uh, much less beneficial to yourself. And yeah, um, definitely. I mean, was that something you experienced? Yes, there. very much so. And I didn't really, every day was kind of like Groundhog Day because I, I couldn't change anything because I didn't have the capacity to do that. I, everything was like a very narrow, restricted world. Just, yeah, the, the fight or flight. And uh, yeah, and then, yeah, that's that's all your, you know, your computing power of your, your brain and your body can can do with that. And um, another question I had was, so with, with your, your father, so was he in, in the military or something like that? Or was he just? Um... No, he was just, just the kind of person he was. And it was probably how he was brought up and how he was conditioned as well. So I don't believe he bore me any ill will. I don't believe he was a bad person. I think he did the best job that he knew how. But at that time, there wasn't, he didn't live in any form of enlightened generation, that's for certain. Is he still around? No. Have you uh, gone through work to understand what was going on with him and how it affected you and how 
you can work through what had happened with that? Is that something you've done? Yes. After his death, um, I got very, very sick. I was probably pretty much the sickest I was throughout the whole of my eating disorder. Um, and I literally, because I didn't know how to deal with all the emotions that I buried my whole life that had started coming up after his death that needed to be dealt with, needed to be looked at, needed to be healed. And because I'd never learned how to process emotions, I thought I was going completely insane and I didn't know how to deal with them at all. So my way of doing that was to restrict more with food. And I was already restricting quite severely. So the only way I could restrict more was to actually stop eating completely. And my health plummeted like really badly. I was passing out all the time. I got kicked out of my gym. I, I wasn't able to like, wear that mask that you wear to pretend everything's okay. And in the end, I just didn't have the energy, didn't have the strength. I was too sick. I couldn't make any decisions, Couldn't not even a simple decision. I couldn't think. And I really, really reached rock bottom to the point where I, I couldn't see any way out and decided the only way out was to take my own life. And I got everything together to do that. Um, and when I was just about to do it, some part of me, which is I think the part of me that is a mum, was like, no, stop, you can't do that. You can't do that to your children, that's not fair. And so I didn't, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that part of me that wanted to survive. And it was at that point when I was at my very, very lowest that I reached out for help. And I started to do all the work to learn how to process my emotions, to learn how my history had affected me, how my conditioning had affected me, and to really start to question all those limiting beliefs and learn to heal. Yeah, and I think that's important. I think that's something that, you know, anyone who's kind of done that work, it's like, you know, how many, how easy would it have been to have known that however many years ago to just go, ah, oh, I should have done this years ago. Um, but then we also wouldn't be the people we are now. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, like I even me too, I, that I kept, you know, to myself for a long time and didn't want to work through and I mean, eventually all this stuff's going to come to the surface. It's just a matter of time. And yeah, it does. You know, whenever it's going to count. Yeah. And so did, when you were at that point, um, I mean, did you reach out to people beforehand, kind of letting them know this was something you were, you were considering um, with ending in your life? Was that something, were you talking with other people? Or did it get brought up either? you know, in like a, a roundabout way or, you know, maybe a joking way or something or straight up telling somebody, oh, this is what I'm thinking? No, no, I, I believed wrongly that pretending everything was okay and keeping everything to myself was strong. And I believed that asking for help 
and showing vulnerability was a weakness, which is actually completely the other way around. And it takes incredible strength to ask for help. Right. Um, so no, I didn't tell anybody um, until I literally hit rock bottom until that day when it all came to a head. How, uh, do you mind talking about this? Is this something you're already talking about? Yeah, I'm fine talking okay. about Okay, so then, I mean, uh, how close were, were you to the the end there? I mean, like. <laughs> I have. I, it, a, sorry, it's, it's kind of a, a weird question, but I just. Yeah, no, it's, I have a know. severe allergy to gin. Um, I go into anaphylactic shock if I drink gin. It's it's a life-threatening allergy. Um, so I obviously avoid gin. And my plan, as I bought a bottle of gin, I got a glass, I was sat down, I poured the glass. So that's how close I was, because that would have killed me within minutes. Um, so... I mean, what happened then when you said, I'm not going to do this? What was what was the action that took place then? Um, I broke down to I, my husband. I finally cried for the first time in 40 years. And I broke down to my husband and told him what was happening because he'd never known me without an eating disorder. And I'd also hidden it incredibly well. He always thought that I was, yeah, kind of weirdly obsessed with healthy food, weirdly obsessed with exercise and seemed to be able to survive on very little food. But I also lied to him a lot and told him that I'd eaten at a friend's or been out for lunch or stuff to hide the eating disorder. And I was very good at doing that. Um, so yeah, I told him and two of my very close friends also, and they helped me find initially a therapist, um, but the therapist wasn't particularly experienced in eating disorders. And then I'm an incredibly determined person, but I like to research everything. So I started researching, I was like, okay, it's do or die now I have to choose recovery or or die that there, there, there wasn't any other option left for me at that point so I started researching everything and listening to all the podcasts and I heard this incredible woman on a podcast who was a recovery coach who had been through an eating disorder and I reached out to her and she basically took my hand and guided me through and that was incredible. And yeah, she's she really, really helped me. And she inspired me to go into coaching other people to help them free themselves and empower them to free themselves and live in freedom. And most importantly, not just living in food freedom, but living in self-love because I hated every part of myself. I, I felt that I wasn't worthy in any way, shape or form. And learning to, to anybody to life even my handwriting was very small and in pencil so that it was less noticeable and impermanent if I went places I didn't speak because I didn't think that I had anything worthwhile to say I didn't think people would want to hear me 
I had no self-worth at all. And having recovered and life on the other side of knowing that actually I am good enough, I'm really good enough, and I am worthy, and I don't have to do anything to earn that. I'm worthy simply by being a human being. And having space in my head that's not full of screaming eating disorder voices telling me how unworthy I am. Life is incredible. And I just feel so passionately that there are many, many, many people in the situation that I was in who think that that's just their life now and they have to exist in that and they don't see a way out because a lot of eating disorders are thought of as an illness for teenage girls and that they have a look but actually you can have an eating disorder in any size body you don't have to be emaciated to have an eating disorder and if something is affecting your life and stopping you from having any self-worth and doing anything then you absolutely deserve to recover and so oh. I felt go ahead I feel so passionately that people need to know that recovery is possible even after 40 years it is possible and it is worth it so what is kind of the recovery success rate or is success <sighs> subjective to everybody yeah, it's very different for everybody. And it also depends on what help you get. Um, a lot of traditional eating disorder recovery, um, particularly in the UK, is all about weight restoration and just coping mechanisms. But they don't focus, probably because they don't have the time and the capacity and the funding, focus on actually learning to love who you are and knowing your worth. And that's, I think, really, really important. And so, and then are there inpatient uh, facilities for this or is it kind of, you do it on your own uh, for the most part? I mean, is, is there- um, But when I coach like, people. Right, but yeah, I mean, so in addition, is there is there that available for people is there inpatient, like if they're... There is inpatient services, yeah, In um, certainly in the States. There is in the UK as well through the NHS, but um, over here, waiting lists are incredibly long. And it's, there are so many people... Much sense. No, there are so many people in need of the services and the services can't meet their need at all. And so then how do you work with... Uh, back steps, I guess is the way to put it, or um, like we said earlier with uh, if someone wasn't meeting their goals or if, if something, you know, they start going back into their old ways, how's that kind of reestablished with you and your clients? By looking at the limiting beliefs, um, because from birth until we're at least seven years old, up to the age of about nine years old, we don't have an analytical component to our brains. So everything we see, hear and feel, we absorb as the truth. And so things like the fact that all the Disney princesses 
are in these thin ideal societal ideal bodies and all the baddies are in bigger bodies tells young children that it's bad to be big Disney is a whole different story I we can get into and <laughs> yeah yeah and society praises weight loss and demonizes fat when in fact fat isn't a bad thing it's simply adipose tissue it's it's not a bad thing and bmi is was never meant to be a medical standard at all it was designed for insurances for white american males in the 1930s i think and it was just actually for working out insurance things so and what a what about like, I know it's not as prevalent uh, over in Europe and other parts of the world, but what about, I mean, we have some people here in the States that are, you know, uh, I don't know what the conversion is, but you know, like seven, 800 pounds or something to that effect. Um, I mean, so I mean, what's, so are you are you if someone is in, in that situation i like i said it's not probably prevalent over there with the people you're working with but i mean what what's something to that effect where it's, it's hurting your health the other way when you're at extreme extreme obesity okay so the first thing to say is our bodies are incredible they are amazing and our bodies know exactly what to do when you need a wee, your body tells you you need a wee and you trust it and you go for a wee. Your body beats your heart and circulates your blood. Your body digests your food, your body breathes. All these things happen and your body knows what to do. And we trust our bodies to do all that. We accept how tall we are. We accept our foot size. And our bodies actually do have a weight that they are optimally healthy at. And that is different for every single person. And it's called a set weight range. And it's not like 150 pounds. It could be 140 to 160 pounds. It's within that range for that particular person. And it could be 250 to 270 for another person. And everybody has a, a set weight range that is optimal for them. And everybody is designed to have different bodies. We're not designed to be the same. So every time people go on a diet to try and fit the societal ideal or standards that people have told them is better for them, their bodies will fight to get back to that set weight. And every time they stop the diet, their bodies will regain to the set weight plus a bit because our bodies worry about the next perceived famine coming along. So it will gather more weight to protect us from the next famine. And so people that go on lots and lots of diets tend to end up gaining more and more weight each time. And there is also, there's lot, health does not comprise just of body weight. There's sure. movement, there's emotional health, there's sleep, there's spiritual health. And so people who are in, much bigger bodies who are suffering health-wise, there is so many things that they can do that don't focus on weight loss, 
but focus on understanding their body and tuning into their body signals, noticing when their hunger and fullness signals are activated. So say you want to eat the family size bar of chocolate and you always eat the family size bar of chocolate. So it's, it's allowing yourself to have that, but perhaps taking a third of that chocolate, putting it in a bowl and going and sitting down and really enjoying it, really tasting it. And then when you finish that bowl that's got the third of the chocolate in, check in with yourself and say, that was lovely, I really enjoyed it. I can go and get more if I want to, because I'm not gonna restrict. and I'm not gonna shame myself, but do I need to? Do I feel the need knowing that I can go back at any time and I can have some in an hour or tomorrow or next week? And I don't have to eat it all. Because things like, I know people say, well, I can't stop. I don't have an off switch. I don't have a full thing. But that's because you've stopped listening. And often people like binge and then feel incredible shame and hate themselves and they binge in secret and they eat huge quantities of food. And they say, I can't help the binge. And that's true because the binge is a response to restriction. And restriction doesn't actually have to be not eating the food. It can be eating that bar of chocolate, but shaming yourself and saying, I shouldn't be doing this. This is really bad. I'm a bad person for eating this chocolate. I'm really unhealthy. I really shouldn't be doing it. And that's mental restriction. And your brain doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's not when it comes to restriction. And all restriction, unless you have the anorexia gene, will result in a binge because a binge is a biological reaction to restriction. So allowing all food and accepting that all food has nourishment, even if it's like, I don't know, a burger or what have you that's supposedly junk food. That burger can nourish you emotionally. It can be a celebration meal. It doesn't have to just be physically nourishing. So not labeling food and not shaming ourselves over what we eat and moving for health, for joy, not for punishment or to earn food or to burn calories. Ensuring so said, oh, go ahead. Uh, carry on, carry on. Uh, so I was going to say, so there's a part you said about the uh, the, the the biological part, um, it, in, you know, in your in your genes. Uh, are there certain parts of the world where there, you know, or is this everybody has it, or is there certain parts of the world where they didn't have to worry about famine? I don't know the answer to that. Okay, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, I have another question. So is there an optimal time for people to come to you or start? I mean, do is it once they get to rock bottom or I mean, how or is it like, how do you get people to start noticing it beforehand? Or if there is if that is a, a thing or if it's just you almost have to get to that that point of getting to rock bottom and you can only go up. I would really like people not to reach rock bottom because it's not a nice place. Sure. Um, so if your relationship with food is causing you problems and you don't feel you can 
go out for a meal because you panic about what you can possibly eat and the calories or you don't feel that you're worthy if you don't meet a certain weight you feel you have to burn off the calories that you eat or you're weighing yourself lots and lots of times a day and your mood for the day is decided by the number on the scales if food is affecting your life and you're thinking about food all the time, I used to bake for hours and hours every day. I never ate it, but I used to bake all the time. I used to have to be around food all the time. And if your head is filled with thoughts about food and calories and exercise all the time, then you deserve to recover. And it doesn't matter where you are, whether you are diagnosed with an eating disorder or not, because many, many people have them and are not diagnosed. You still deserve to recover. You still deserve to have that freedom in your head and to be able to live life fully without worrying about that all the time. So yeah, contact somebody, reach out for help at any time. And so when they want to reach out to help and find you or just to have some research, how are they going to do that to find you? Uh, to find me, um, well, I have my own podcast, which is called Fly to Freedom which is all eating disorder related. I also am very active on Instagram, um, which is at Julia Trahane on Instagram. And I have my website, which is juliatrahane.com. So, yeah, and I'll, I'll put those all in the show notes and yeah, make sure that uh, everyone goes and checks those out and yeah, gets over to you. Or, and just, you know, education never hurts anybody, so. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Julia, very much. Thank you for having been on here. I was going to say having me on the show, but uh, <laughs> th thank you for being on the show. Uh, and yeah, I hope that uh, you have a great rest of your day. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and letting me help raise awareness. Very welcome. All right. Take care. Thanks. All right. That is Julia Trahane. So you guys... Um, yeah, if that's ever something or you know somebody who might be going through that or you're going through that or yeah, you're just curious, get a hold of her. I'll put all the stuff in the show notes. Easy to find. Uh, thank you so much, you guys, for listening. Uh, again, you know, check out other shows on the network on the QGBN, QGBN, such as When the Gloves Come Off, the Thinking Man's Pro Wrestling Podcast. This is it with Lizzie and Saved by the Ben. The show is brought to you by Fred Ben Savage's Buck, Stoner Reads Productions, Hardcore Entertainment, Hypnosis is Great, and SockEmUp.org. And yeah, check it out on YouTube or Rumble too if you guys want to watch. But if you don't want to see my uh, my pretty face, you know, listen on the podcast. That's cool too. I'm good with whatever. So you guys, thank you for being here and listening to the end. And really appreciate it. And that is the show, man. Boom. It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker.
It's Rusty Diamond Motherfucker. Ernest! 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 <coughs> yes, Pee Wee. You brought the snacks, right? 